I'm glad you're here. We're, we're, we're going to end this series today, uh, Goliath Must Fall. And I got to thinking about this, this giant that we face and the many giants that we face in life. And I started to think about Goliath. Goliath wasn't born nine feet tall. Right? Goliath didn't show up in the world looking like a giant. There was a time when Goliath was probably kind of cute. And the people around Goliath, they weren't real threatened. And as he learned to crawl and talk, there were people probably talking to Goliath and baby talk and, you know, poking Goliath and thinking, you know, hey, this is somebody I, I'd like to have a part of my life for a long time. I think, I think this is a lot of times how the most significant giants that keep us from God's purpose for our lives, I think this is how they begin to form in our lives. They, they look cute at first. It's, it's attractive in the beginning. Doesn't seem to be, a, be, be real threatening at first glance, at first notice. But as that giant is entertained in our life, it begins to look a lot more threatening. And it begins to take a lot bigger, more prominent shape. And it begins to take control of our minds and our hearts. And, and it's what's happening in this part of Israel's history where the Bible tells us that for 40 days the people of God had been holed up on this hillside in front of them a valley, the valley of Elah, and across from them another hillside that stretches out in front of them and all the way out and down and to the right. I know this because I've been there and with some of you. I've walked this, the, the brook that, that runs through the valley. It's the brook that David would have used to pull his smooth stones from that he would eventually hurl at this giant, I've stood with some of you on the hillside where Israel would have been standing, where the king of Israel would have, would have been holed up and looking not just down into the valley, but across to the hillside where the Philistines were, were taunting them day by day. And I've stood and I've looked off and to the left from Israel's Viewpoint, they, they would have seen how the valley stretched down and to the left and around, and, and, and they would have known that that valley would, would lead to Bethlehem. That's where David, the shepherd boy, is living with his father. And, and during this holdup, his father would, would, would tell David, Hey, why don't you stop tending the sheep for, 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 for just a little bit? And here's some supplies. Why don't you leave our home in Bethlehem and, and carry these supplies to your brothers on the front lines? And, and this is where David eventually sees Goliath. He, he, the reason David is ever in position to face off against the giant is because David was willing to serve. He was willing to carry some, some donuts to his brothers. Come on. He, he, he was willing to do something insignificant for the kingdom. And so on, on, on day 40, David shows up and he gives the supplies to his brothers and as he's doing so, he hears the giant begin to shout at the king of Israel. Goliath would lead the ranks of the Philistines and he, he would approach Israel in this valley and he'd cry out to the king. He'd say, send me your best man. How about you send me your best fighter and we're going to go at it, just one-on-one. -on -one. And since I can't be defeated, and you know, the Goliath is like, I can't be defeated. He's cocky. He, he's taunting God. He's taunting the king. He's taunting Israel. But he, but he throws out this idea. He says, you send me your best fighting man. And if your best fighting man can overcome me, then we'll serve you. The Philistines will serve you. But if I win, and Goliath is pretty certain he's going to win. If I win, then you're going to serve us. And, and for 40 days, the king of Israel, he has no response can't find a single person 
willing to step. David comes, it's day 40, and he's like, listen, something snaps inside of David. It's on in David's mind. He goes to the king. He says, send me. And king's like, I can't. Why? Because you're not a man yet. It doesn't matter. It's not about me. I'm not going in my strength. I'm going in the strength of the God who's sending me right now. Saul's trying to figure it out. He's looking at David. No, you're going to need some armor. Starts to put armor on David, but the armor's too big. David's like, again, Saul, listen, king, all due respect. It's not about me. It's about God. You see, I believe we, we could be reading about anybody against Goliath right now. Had anybody been willing to do what David was willing to do, trust God. We could be reading about, about Phil and Goliath, Tony and Goliath. We, we could be reading about Macy and Goliath, Sarah and Goliath. I, I think God could have used a 12-year-old girl to beat that thing. Come on. Because it wasn't about the person. It's about God. It wasn't about the armor. It wasn't about the weapon. Give me a sword. Give me a slingshot. Give me a BB gun. Let me go at him with my bare hands. It doesn't matter because it's not about you. Here's the good thing about God. He doesn't leave the end result up to any of us. All he wants to know is, is any of us willing to step and trust him? All David's got to do is step. And David does what no other person is willing to do. He trusts God in a way that every other available champion was unwilling to. And I'm telling you, that hillside was filled with potential champions. The only reason we don't know any of their names is because they weren't willing to trust God like David was. All God's looking for is one person to trust him. All God's looking for is one person to take a step of faith. All God's looking for is one person not to trust in you, but to trust in him. Not to trust in your own strength, but to trust in the strength of our God. And God's calling for us will always demand from us a step outside of our comfort zone every time. And he wants to know today who's willing to step with him. Now, the reason I said this giant may be most destructive of all the giants is because this, this giant of comfort is something we crave. There, there's something alluring to comfort. We, we desire comfort in our lives. The definition of comfort is this. It's a state of physical ease and freedom from pain or restraint. It's something that contributes to physical ease and well-being. It's, it's prosperity. And the pleasant lifestyle secured by, who doesn't want comfort? Come on, somebody. The easing or alleviation of a person's feelings of grief or distress, a warm quilt. Well, wrap me up in it. Come on, I, I want to be comforted. Like, like we all desire that. Prosperity, where you don't have to worry about anything. Prosperity, blessing, where you don't have to trust God anymore for anything because you've got everything you need. Come on. Comfort, well-being. Can I just tell you something today that, that for those of you who are in Christ, comfort is the one thing that's guaranteed to you in heaven. For those who are in Christ. Now, if you don't know if you're in Christ, you got to be saved to get to heaven. If you don't know if you're saved, then just hold on a moment. I'm going to give you an opportunity to be saved as soon as we're through. The good news is, is Jesus will save you the moment you ask him to because he loves you. He wants to save you. He wants to forgive you of your sin. He wants you to be in heaven. He's, he's prepared a place for you already. And when you get there, guess what? You're going to be comforted. And as I started thinking about comfort and faith, it's, it's like we're guaranteed comfort in heaven. There, 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 there's a deferred comfort 
that we're going to receive when we get there, but, but nobody really likes deferred anything. That's why so few people are saving for retirement, right? Because we don't want to defer anything. We want everything now. And so I got to thinking about faith and comfort and how we want comfort now, even though it's the one thing guaranteed to us in heaven, and we hope that we'll get enough faith someday to do what God's calling us to do, when the reality of faith in heaven is there is no place for faith in heaven. Y'all understand what I'm I'm talking about? There there is no place for faith in heaven. Comfort is guaranteed to us in heaven, but there's no place for faith in heaven. Faith is forged in the discomfort of here now. You see, the Bible tells us of faith, if you're not sure what faith is, Hebrews chapter 11, it gives us the definition of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. When you get to heaven, everything good you've ever hoped for is already going to be there with you. Ain't no hoping in heaven. Just hopping because you got everything you ever wanted. So I don't need that part of faith in heaven. What's the other part? Well, it's the evidence of things not seen. Well, that which is not seen now will be seen there. I don't need faith in heaven. The only chance I've got, we've got, to use the faith we have is here, now, not there, then. Faith is forged in discomfort. The faith that I have in the God of heaven, the God who promises me comfort when I get there, that faith, my faith, is forged in pain. It's fortified in uncertainty. Faith is cultivated in the furnace, not in the hot tub. Faith is developed in the storms of life, not in the spas of life, even though it'd be nice if it were. It's not. Faith is strengthened where there's challenge, not where there's compromise. You see, God's not calling his church to be comfortable. He's calling his church to be faithful. He's calling us to live lives of faith-filled conviction and purpose. He's, He's calling us to obedience not ease. He calls us not just to belief in him. That's easy. The Bible says even the demons believe in God and shudder at the, the sound of God. But he's calling us to follow. To follow in the steps of Jesus. And it's not easy to follow in the steps of Jesus when you understand the steps of Jesus took him away from the comfort of his throne in heaven and into the dysfunction of this sin-plagued planet. There's steps that took Jesus away from communion and to the cross. Those are the steps we're called to follow. There's steps that took Jesus from the comfort of the temple to to a place of torture, torture on a hill called Golgotha. To follow in Jesus' steps will always cost us momentary comfort for the deferred comfort that we will receive in full when we get there. As I got to thinking about this message and the announcement of Polaris and everything that God is doing, I shared with our team something that had been shared with me. Uh, Several mentors of mine had, had said to me personally, they said, Chad, God must really trust you. And if I'm honest, I didn't really like to hear that. I, I actually, that, that didn't make me feel good. It felt like someone just laid a, an 800-pound burden on, on my back. And my first thought was, okay, that's a big responsibility. God, do you trust me? 
I looked at our team and I said, God must really trust you. God must really trust this church. God must really trust those of you who are in Westerville right now. But, 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 but I started thinking about this, that, that when we get to heaven and we look back at this life that we've lived here now, it, it's, it's going to feel like five seconds. We, we, we've got five seconds on earth to make our, our lives matter for, for, for eternity. We've got five seconds to make an eternal impact this side of heaven. Five seconds. Because I'm telling you, you compare your 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years here, even if you live to be 101, you, you compare that time here to what eternity feels like, it's five seconds. And I said, maybe God's counting us faithful, those of us who've lived one or two seconds. I, I don't, I, I'm hoping I've not lived my third second yet. Some of you, I know you've lived at least your third second because I see, I see you. <laughs> Some of you have lived your fourth. I hope I've got a, a few seconds left. I, I said to our team, you know, most of us, we, we've lived our first second, maybe our second, second. And if God trusts us with the first two, can we just be faithful with seconds number three, four, and five? If, God's, if God says he can trust you today, don't, don't just be like, oh, I can't fail now. No, we can fail real quick. We can mess this up real fast. Can we be faithful with every second? Can we make our lives count for eternity Got five seconds to live this life to make heaven full. Got five seconds to live our God-given purpose. Got five seconds to reach the potential that God has given you to reach. And the one giant that's keeping so many from living lives that really matter is the giant of comfort. It is the allure of ease. It's the lie that says because life is short, you might as well make life about you. It's when we miss out on eternal impact because we're so focused on what we temporarily want and need and desire. And we become content and complacent and comfortable and we stop trusting God for more. And we begin entertaining ourselves with what we've got. And we become internally focused and not externally minded. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 12 of a successful man. And it's the kind of story that Jesus tells that one day when I get to heaven, I want to sit Jesus down. Anybody want to sit Jesus down? Just ask him a few questions. Hey, can you sit down for a minute? I got I to gotta, I gotta ask you something. Don't you think in Luke 12 you overreacted just a little bit? You killed somebody. I didn't kill anybody. No, no, no. You killed somebody. You took somebody's life. Come on. No, I didn't do that. You know, uh, let, let's have a conversation. I, I don't really know that. I think we're going to understand. We're not going to really have those conversations. But right now, that's how my mind works. Lord, didn't you overreact in Luke chapter 12? Because Jesus tells this story. Here's what he says. It's, it's the greatest confrontation with comfort maybe in the Bible. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And so he thought to himself, what shall I do? I, I have no place to store my crops. Then he said to himself, this is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones, and there I'll store up my surplus. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years, so now you can just take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. It really sounds like a wonderful plan, right? It's like, it's good. This is a, this is a wise man. But God said to this man, you fool. Overreact much? I don't know. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. You're on your last one-tenth of one second. I want to know who will get what you have prepared for yourself once you're gone. 
This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Like God's not pleased with our abundance even though God's the one who's provided our abundance. If all we plan to do with our abundance is save it for ourselves and take life easy and coast along and get so comfortable that we never have to trust God again and we never have to have faith again. And God's not just interested in you. See, your faith isn't just about you. It's about the people that God's placed in your life for you to reach and serve and, and sow into. And, and Jesus is telling the story because he wants this man to think about not just the fact that he's got enough to eat for the rest of his life, but who's going to eat the grain that you've got stored up for you if nobody even knows where you've got it stored? Who's going to eat the grain that you've got stored up for you if your only plan with that grain is, is to, to, to use it for yourself? And don't you know that when, when you leave this world, somebody, whoever's first to find that grain, they're going to decide what to do with it. You, you don't get to decide where your bank account goes once you're gone. Like, like somebody else is going to make those decisions for you. And, and yet you're, you're the one who's going to stand before God with what he gave you and give an account as to what he gave you. And were you faithful with it or were you not? Did you leave it behind and, and, and not, not have any kingdom-minded plan for it? Or did you just kind of, oh, I'll just let somebody else deal with it? You know, they're not going to stand before God, with, with what God on behalf of what God gave you. You're going to stand before God and give an account as to everything he's given you and how you used it and what you did with it. And God's given us a lot. And I've got a feeling that there's some men and there's some women who were there that day and saw David go to battle that were thinking to themselves, why didn't I do that? Why did I not trust God? Why was I so afraid and so timid? Why, why did I not do more with the influence God gave me? Why did I not seize more divine opportunities? Because church, there's a race to be won. There is a battle to be fought. There is a calling to be contended for. And it's of eternal significance. And we've got opportunity to, to build another auditorium. One, one that I, I hope is filled with people for the next 55 years and, and beyond. Many of whom will come to Jesus for the very first time in their lives. And when we have opportunity to open more campuses and in prisons and, and do more outreach local and global. If we really understood what's at stake. If we really could recognize that we've got five seconds to make an eternal impact and difference with what God has given us. If we understood that, then, then there ought never to be an ask from a pulpit for anybody to give. There, there ought always be enough in the storehouse of God's local church that we'd be looking for new opportunities and not just seizing the one God puts clear in front of our path. There would be more than enough always and ever to do everything that God is calling us to do. And then you'd find a church getting real creative. How, 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 how are we going to reach more people? What can we do with this abundance that we've been given? You see, nothing worth gaining comes without a cost. Nothing worth gaining that's going to impact heaven is going to be gained without sacrifice. I, I can't name anything in the life of faith that's comfortable. There's nothing about living a life of faith that's comfortable. Resisting sin is not comfortable. Denying this flesh, self-indulgent flesh, it's not comfortable. Being transformed into the image of Christ, it's not comfortable. 
laying down your own wants and needs in the moment to invest in the kingdom of heaven. It takes faith. It's not comfortable. There's nothing comfortable about living a life of faith that takes hard work and sacrifice, dedication and intentionality. It takes a willingness to, to stand firm in the face of persecution and suffering and to hold fast to the word of God when the way of the world looks so much different. It means slaying the giant of comfort and living a life of faith-fueled, faith-filled conviction. So how do I slay this giant? Here's five things I want you to write down real quick as we come to a close. Number one, I count my days as few. Oh, it's easy to get comfortable if you think you got all the time in the world, but you don't got all the time in the world. None of us do. Jesus says in John chapter 9, as long as it is day, do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Come on, he's telling us about life. He's saying you better work while you've got the time to work. You better make those five seconds count because when they're through, they're through. It's over. David in the Psalms, he says, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that all my days are numbered, how fleeting life is. I love what Pastor Louis Giglio says in his book. He said, I have a deep conviction that, my great, that the greatest regret any of us will ever know is that of standing before Jesus, knowing that we lived too safe, too comfortable, too short-sighted, realizing that we were gluttons for pleasure when we were supposed to be lean warriors for others' freedom and Jesus' fame. Count my days as short. Number two, I consider the only thing that matters is who I've introduced to Jesus. You see, your faith is not just about you. It's not just about your life. It's not just your freedom and your salvation that hangs in the balance. There are people in your life who may never know Jesus loves them, but by you and through you. There are people in the world who may never know Jesus loves them, but by you and through you. As I think about the moment when the giant falls and the, the Philistines watch their prize fighter fall and, and Israel watches this, this, this threat now eliminated an entire nation was set free because of the faith of a single shepherd boy all the people began not running from the threat but running toward the threat why their faith is activated because of the faith of a single shepherd boy their hope is restored in God there's a fire that takes shape in their soul and, and it makes them just, just want to trust God for more. And I wonder, I wonder what God wants to do in your families, in your neighborhoods, in this city, in our cities, in this nation, in the world. Through you, by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you. Your decision to get on board with Jesus is not just about you. It's about those who need to know that salvation is found in nobody else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's a truth, church. And people need to know that. Here's a greater truth. That everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. That's an amazing truth. God doesn't count anybody out, nor shall we. 
If anything brings you comfort this side of heaven, let it be that you know your family's saved, that you know your friends are saved, that you know you've done led every person you can to Jesus, and you're going to see them to heaven. Drive your sports car now, enjoy it. But guess what? That's not going with you, but the people you bring alongside of you will be there with you. Come on. You want your family there? You want your friends there? You want some people you work with there? You want the people across the street from you there? You want this city represented in heaven? Come on, we're building cities in heaven. We're advancing the kingdom of God. How? By preaching, declaring, and living the gospel of Christ. I trust the Holy Spirit's leading, number three. In moments like this, it's what I've got to do. God, we, we barely done with Hilliard. What? You want us to build again, give again, grow again? Well, okay then. You've got all the details worked out. I'm going to trust you. Because when he, the spirit of truth, comes, this is what Jesus said, he will guide you. And he's good at guiding people. Just remember the outcome's not up to you. The first step is. The outcome's not up to you. God's plan is so much bigger than you. If he showed you the whole thing all up front, it'd kill you anyways. Scare you to death. You'd die. That's why he doesn't tell us everything up front. He just, will you run? Will you go? Will you trust me? Will you step here? Will you step there? Will you give this? Can you sacrifice that? And you watch. What God does, I'll tell fear where to go, to hell with you. Fear's got no place in my life. It's got no faith, place in yours. Every step of faith is one giant step over fear. Preached that a few weeks ago. I still like that line. I think it's, I think it's something we got to get etched inside our souls. We're always afraid. I, I, think, I think David was afraid. How are you not going to be afraid? You got a slingshot against a giant nine feet tall with a sword bigger than you. Oh, I guarantee you David has some fear in his heart, but you know what? He said, to hell with you fear. I serve a God who's bigger than this giant that's in front of me. I might be scared now, but you know what? I'll never know until I step in David's steps and he throws that stone. And guess what? He watches the giant fall. And God gives him victory, a victory that was already won in the eyes of God anyway. Wasn't a surprise to God. Some of you, you're afraid that you've already wasted your life. Some of you thinking, now I am on my last second. I'm pretty sure of that. Maybe my last two. I've hoarded too much. I've, I've wasted too much. I've not, I've not planned well enough. I've not done enough for the kingdom. Can I, can I just tell you that God does not give us a spirit of fear but a power of a sound mind and if, if listen if the spirit of God I, I just want, want you to know the spirit of God can set you free in your mind if you feel that way because here's what I know about God if you give him everything the last second of your life if, that, if that's all you've got left don't wait for it but if all you've got is one second left and you give him that last second and you give him everything in that last second because it's all you've got left God will redeem every other second of your life if it's all you've got then give it to him and watch what God does with it if it's all you've got, trust him with it and let him redeem everything else. He can redeem anybody, anywhere, anytime, no matter what. That's why I praise him for everything and always. Number five. That's it. That's what I want to end with. I praise God 
for everything and always. What does praise do? It puts him in perspective. The more I worship Jesus, the bigger he gets. The, the, the smaller my giant appears, the less my worry feels. Come on, somebody. When I praise him for everything and always, God, this opportunity, it feels too big. God, th this step, it, 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 it seems a bit scary. Well, you know what? You asked me to do it, so you're going to see me through it. How about I praise you for everything and always? Come on, somebody. How about I thank you for everything and always? Then I got the opportunity to be scared every once in a while. Because if you're living a life of faith, you'll have that opportunity. If you've, never, if you've not been scared much in your life, you've not been living a life of faith. I thank God that I've got the opportunity to feel some resistance every once in a while. Some pushback every once in a while. Some anxiety every once in a while. Because it just reminds me it's not about me, it's all about Him. And so I will thank you and praise you and worship you for everything and always. Amen. Would you pray with me? Bow your head, close your eyes, every location right now. I, I, I'm, I'll, actually, I just want to ask everybody to pray with me. Everybody. It's, some of you are going to dedicate your life for the first time. Some of you rededicate your life. I, I just think we need to thank him together and, and ask him to fill us. So would you just pray this prayer? Jesus, thank you for who you are. I ask you to forgive me, cleanse me from the inside out, every sin. I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I'm asking you to lead me my every step. I want my faith to grow. I want these five seconds to count. I want to live my life by you and for you. And I want to bring as many people as I can to heaven with me. I want to use everything you've given me with your kingdom in mind. I thank you for being so good, so faithful. Even when I've not been good and I've not been faithful, you always are, you always will be. Jesus, I honor you, I worship you. In your name, everybody said. Amen. Come on, one more time. Would you stand up on your feet and put your hands together? Come on, could we really honor Jesus today? Come on, we're going to worship him one more time, but I want to know, are you ready to worship him? Come on, do you think he's worthy of your praise and your worship? Do you think God is good? Do you really believe he is faithful? He has been, he is now, he will always forever continue to be. Come on, let's lift our voice and worship Jesus today.